Hello, and welcome to History of the Utremere, episode 1.17, The Call from the Yeast, season 1 bibliography. This is not season 2, but that will be coming soon, I promise. During the break, I was re-listening to season 1, and I noticed a few things I wanted to point out, clarify, and just expand on. So we'll be going episode by episode, and I'll be adding some details as well as the sources that I recommend if you want to know more about the focus of each specific episode. There is a full list of sources at historyoftheuchimer.wordpress.com. That's historyoftheuchimer, one word, dot wordpress, also one word, dot com. But I've included literally everything I've used and read there. And some articles or even full books are only relevant for tiny details. Here, we'll be focusing on the best sources. Right at the top, here are my five favorite reads. One, The Crusades, Islamic Perspectives by Carol Hillenbrand. Number two, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, The Rise and Fall of Byzantium, 955 A.D., Two, The First Crusade, by Anthony Caldellis. Number three, Women and the Fatimids in the World of Islam, by Delia Cortese and Simonetta Calderini. Number four, The Alexiad, by Anna Gomnini. Number five, Sleepwalking into a New World, The Emergence of Italian City Communes in the 12th Century, by Chris Wickham. We'll be talking about two through five as we go along, but that first one has been a pretty constant presence, as a lot of what happened in this season was basically building up to the Islamic world that Hillenbrand describes on the eve of the First Crusade, as well as during the existence of the Uchmer states. So let's get into an episode-by-episode breakdown, starting with episode 1.1, The Order of God, in which we first introduced the Fatimid Caliphate, and everyone's favorite Mad Caliph, Al-Hakim. Let's talk primary sources first. First up is one of my favorites, Yahya ibn Said al-Antaki, who was a Melkite Christian physician. A French translation of Yahya's work is available online as part of the Patrologia Orientalis. That's a project that seeks to translate the work of various Eastern Christians into Latin or other Western European languages. The project started in 1897 and is ongoing. The edition with Yahya's work is from 1924, so the writing's a bit stilted. But it's paired with the original text in Arabic. And Yahya is actually writing a continuation of Said ibn Batrik, also known as Eutychius, one of the first Melkite patriarchs to write in Arabic. A uh, quick reminder, Melkites are Orthodox Christians, so they're in line with the church in Constantinople. But they're usually living in Islamic territory, particularly in Egypt and the Levant. I'll quote from the introduction here. Now, I'm translating the French myself, so any errors are my own there. And of course, this is some dude in 2021 translating French written nearly a century ago in 1924. It's self-translated from a classical Arabic text written over nine centuries earlier in the 11th century. Yeah. Quote, In the name of God, merciful and forgiving. A book that is written by Yahya, son of Said, of Antioch, as a continuation of the history of Said, son of Bithrik. My aim in this book is to provide all the events of times gone by that have come to my attention, and in my opinion, are authentic, as well as all the events that have taken place from the end of the history of Said, son of Bithrik, patriarch of Alexandria, until our own time. I have the intention to fulfill my obligation in the eyes of he who has begged me to carry out this work and write it, who has set me to put it in order and arrange it, 
may God keep him and preserve him from what he fears. End quote. Yahya goes on to mention that he intends to record the goings-ons of the various rulers of the era, both the Caliph Imam of Egypt and the Emperor in Constantinople, as well as the various patriarchs of Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. He clarifies that there's not much information regarding patriarchs in Rome, as Rome is far from the lands of Egypt and Syria. His work then continues to describe not only what he's experienced, but what he's read in various sources. His work is very accurate for the period he lived through, and an enjoyable read. He recounts many interesting little details and faits divers. He's obviously not the only source on the Fatimids. Their history is also present in various Muslim accounts. Maybe the best one there would be the work of Al-Makrizi, an Egyptian historian writing in the Mamluk Sultanate of the 14th century. As the Fatimid Caliphate is by that time a relic of the past, Al-Makrizi is not a contemporary. He's working from other sources and mostly compiling them. Notably, Al-Makrizi was a student of Ibn Khaldun, perhaps the greatest medieval historian. Khaldun was not a narrative historian in the traditional sense. His most famous work, the Muqaddimah, includes concepts such as economic trends and sociology and political theory, and he's very explicit about the need to avoid bias. Unfortunately, Khaldun is writing a universal history, so while he touches on the Fatimids, he doesn't go into details like Yahya or even Al-Makrizi do. But if you're a fan of history, Ibn Khaldun is as essential a read as Herodotus. Now, as for secondary sources... My main source for the Fatimid narrative was Michael Brett's The Fatimid Empire. It is a bit dense. If you're not accustomed to some of the terms or the big names in medieval Muslim history, I would recommend, honestly, reading it alongside Wikipedia to get some simpler explanations of basic concepts, such as, for example, the Sunni-Shia split and early Arab expansion. To be frank, that's what I did, and it's why the beginning of episode 1 focuses on clarifying these terms and all the various religious schisms. In episode 1 specifically, I also drew heavily from Paul E. Walker's Caliph of Cairo, which focuses on just al-Hakim, but does so in a way that clearly illustrates how the Fatimid state worked. As for episode 2, come from the land of the ice and snow. Primary sources, let's talk first about the opening, which I lifted directly from Paul M. Cobb's The Race for Paradise, an Islamic history of the Crusades. The story he recounts of Ibn al-Thumna comes from Al-Kamil fi Al-Tariq, The Complete History, written by Ali ibn al-Athir. I have a copy of D.S. Richards' translation of The Complete History by al-Athir, but it only deals with the crusading period. So my copy starts with the fall of Antioch. I haven't actually read the portions of The Complete History that deals with the Norman arrival in Italy. Ibn al-Athir will be coming up more in season two, though. Al-Athir lived in the mid-12th century, and he was a resident of the region of Diyarbakir, just north of the Crusader states. So they were definitely on his mind. He seems to have even traveled with Saladin for a time. As for other sources, the Normans are one area where I really haven't read that many primary sources, with the exception of one work we'll talk about later. But if you want, you can dig up a copy of L'Histoire de l'Innormand, The History of the Normans which is an old French translation of Amatus of Montesino's work on the Normans. Amatus was a Benedictine monk who lived during the era and was a contemporary of the events. He wrote his work in Latin originally, but that original has been lost, and so now we've only got this old French translation, which might have also been abridged or modified in some way. 
you've also got William of Apulia's Gesta Roberti Wiscardi, the deeds of Robert Giscar. Willie is writing for the court of Roger Borsa, Giscar's son, so he's not to be wholly trusted. Similarly, Goffredo Malaterra, another Benedictine monk, wrote, De rebus gestis, rogeri calabria et ciciliae comitis, et roberti wiscardi tucis, fratri sheus. Concerning the things done by Roger, Count of Calabria and Sicily, and his brother, Duke Robert Giscar. This work seems to have been written for the court of Roger I of Sicily, so he focuses a lot on the capture of Sicily. However, because of the various perspectives and biases involved, I think it's best to read a secondary source that synthesizes them all. Here, I recommend the very readable Norman Conquest of Southern Italy and Sicily by Gordon S. Brown. Episode 1.3 Here again, Yaya's work touches on some developments. He was born in Antioch, and though he lived in Cairo for a long time, he did move back to his hometown eventually. As for Greek sources, the only one I actually read was Mikhail Pselos' Chronographia, which actually covers the century before his era, that is, the 10th century and early 11th century. Pselos is a politicker, though, and you can't really trust him that much, especially as he starts to get closer to his own era. He was subjected to a heresy trial, remember? And so some bits of his work have a distinct YouTube apology video vibe. The other main Greek source is the work of Ioannis Kilitsis, who is mostly compiling previous works during the reign of Alexios Komnenos. He's a bit sloppy with details, though, and his close ties to Alexios also make him a bit suspect. Secondary sources, though, here I have to tip my hat to Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, The Rise and Fall of Byzantium, 955 AD to The First Crusade by Anthony Caldellis. I already mentioned it, but it's a great work, a super enjoyable and entertaining read that not only supplied me with facts, but also illustrated how to make history telling entertaining and lively without sacrificing academic rigor. An absolute joy. I'm super bummed that the work ends at the First Crusade, and so I won't have Caldellis to guide me moving forward. Now, episode 1.4, Step by Step. Here, we really start to get into primary source drought. As I mentioned in the episode, the Seljuks were not really good at writing stuff down. They came from an at least quasi-nomadic background, so most of the writing about them was done by those they conquered, or at least in terms that the settled societies around them would understand. For the earliest period, there is the Maliknama, the Book of the King, which appears to be based on Turkmen oral histories, and tells the story from the Seljuk point of view. But it's not all that accurate. It's useful in getting an idea of how the Seljuks saw themselves, but not so much in terms of facts and dates. The other contemporary sources are mostly fragments or written from an outsider's point of view. In that last group, we can include the writing of Armenian historians, two of them in particular. First up, Matthew of Edessa. Uh, Edessa, by the way, is usually called Urfa or Urha in local languages. That's from the Syriac name of the city, Urhai. Edessa actually refers to another city in Macedonia, 
When Seleucus, one of Alexander the Great's generals, took the city, he renamed it after the Edessa back in Macedonia, like, you know, Paris, Texas, or something like that. Anyway, that name has stuck around in the West for whatever reason. In Armenian, Matthew of Edessa is actually known as Mateos Urhayetsi. Mateos becomes Matthew, and Urhayetsi refers to first Urha, Edessa, and then Tsi is kind of like the English suffix Ian, so like Edessian. Similarly, Yevropa means Europe, and Yevropatsi means European. See, I'm getting there with the Armenian. I still can't make heads or tails of the script most of the time, but if it's Romanized, I can make do. Anyway, Mateos wrote the Jamanakagrutsun, <clears throat> uh, which translates to Chronicle, and which I'm never going to try to say again. I have read pieces of the Chronicle, which of course deals with the Seljuks, the Byzantines, and the Franks. I guess the best thing about Matthew is that he has a very strong bias about pretty much everything, but he's more or less upfront about it. Matthew is writing in the 12th century, and uh, he's pretty sure that the apocalypse is just around the corner. So he blends in legends and myths with his facts, and omits anything that doesn't support his narrative of calamity. You've also got the work of Aristakis Lastiverzi. Again, that C at the end means like Lastiverzian, because he's from a town called Lastivert. Aristakis wrote the history about the sufferings visited upon us by foreign peoples living around us. Which, even the title. Man, you know what it's going to be about. You know what it's going to be like. A lot of the same issues that are in Matthew's work plague the writing of Aristakis as well. Ibn Alathir also wrote about the Seljuks, but he had his own bias. He was associated with the Zengids. The Zengids were a dynasty that we'll be seeing again in the future. Their founder, Imar ad-Din Zengi, was associated with the Seljuks, and we've already met his father, Aksungur, the emir that Malik Shah installed in Aleppo. Here, as with the Normans, I recommend a secondary source. For an overall view of the Seljuks, Andrew Peacock's The Great Seljuk Empire is pretty good. It's from the same series as Brett's The Fatimid Empire, so it's also a bit dense at times, but with a few wiki searches, it should be alright. Peacock has also got a work focused on the early Seljuk conquests, the aptly titled Early Seljuk History, which is also a great resource. Now, as for episodes 5 and 6, dealing with the events leading up to the Battle of Manzikert. Here, it's really the same sources as episodes 3 and 4. For the Romans, we now also have the work of Mikhail Ataliatis, though. Ataliatis worked closely with Romanos Dioyenis, and he was also personally present at the Battle of Manzikert. However, he was writing what amounts to propaganda for the court of Nikiforos Votaniatis, the emperor who was removed in a coup by Alexios Komnenos. So, Ataliatis knows what's what, but he also has his own reasons to distort events. The only primary source I read of all of these, by the way, was an English translation of Matthew of Edessa's work by Ara Edmund Dostorian. Episode 1.7, Bound by Hate. This episode was rough, source-wise. I couldn't get my hands on a source that specifically dealt with the Armenians of the era in a way that explained in detail the transition from the Bagratuni Kingdom of Armenia to the Kingdom of Cilician Armenia. I had to piece together scraps from other works and articles and books, so I can't really recommend any of them as a good introduction to this specific topic. The main primary source is again Matthew of Edessa, 
who again has this incredibly strong bias. Apart from those sources, there are other scraps and archaeology and other things that would require a dedicated historian specialized in the region, era, and the languages to parse and create some sort of narrative from. There is a book written in French by French historian Gérard Dédéan called Les Arméniens entre Grecs, Musulmans et Croisés, Études sur les pouvoirs arméniens dans le Proche-Orient méditerranéen. 1068 to 1150. That's uh, Armenians between Greeks, Muslims, and Crusaders. A study about Armenian powers in the Mediterranean Near East. 1068 to 1150. Uh, I mean, 1150. 1068 to 1150. Okay, that took a while to switch back. Anyway. I've seen tantalizing footnotes in other works that seem to indicate it could have more information that would be really useful for me, but as of yet, I've been unable to get my hands on a copy. The closest thing was an article by the same historian, De Dion, about Armenian-Byzantine relationships from the end of the 10th to the end of the 11th century, called Les Arméniens sur la frontière sud-orientale de Byzance fin 9e à fin 10e siècle, and M.J. Laurent's 1992 article, Byzance et Antioche sur le Kuropalate Philarete, Byzantium and Antioch under the Kuropalates Philaretos, which deals with Philaretos Brahamios specifically. And there are also some other random articles written from either a more Byzantine or Crusader perspective. You can find all of them at historyoftheuchemer.wordpress.com. The Armenian perspective was and will remain important for the Uchmer states, though, and I hope to find something a bit better moving forward, a bit heftier. Okay, on to episode 1.8. I used a lot of the same sources as episode 1 here, but I would really like to shout out a great work that was not super relevant to us, but which I found so interesting that I read nearly all of it, Women and the Fatimids in the World of Islam, by Delia Cortese and Simonetta Calderini. To quote from the introduction, The Fatimid period is one of the best documented in medieval Islamic history. A considerable number of medieval non-Ismaili literary works, as well as documentary, epigraphic, artistic, and archaeological sources, shed light on most aspects relating to the history of the Fatimid dynasty and of the societies in those areas under Fatimid rule or influence. Complementing this body of sources are the few historical works written by Ismaili authors and the historical references contained in the extensive Ismaili doctrinal literature. Ismaili and non-Ismaili primary sources represent the core material on which the contents of this book are based. In the present book, the data drawn from a vast selection of primary sources are approached and interpreted through the methods of textual, socio-historical, and contextual analyses. As is the case with the overwhelming majority of medieval sources, None of the primary literature used here was written by women, and as a whole, none of the male writers dealt with women as their primary concern. Mediated as they are through the male voices, the references to women found in these sources may be said to a large extent to be more revealing about men's perceptions of women than the women themselves. In particular, they uncover the manner in which male writers, but also the male protagonists they wrote about, viewed women, and what, on the basis of their world outlook, backgrounds, and aims, men thought it relevant to report. As a result, for a comprehensive and sound interpretation of the data on women in Ismaili and non-Ismaili sources, 
special attention has been devoted throughout this book to the inference of the social, political, and cultural contexts which informed the writer's perspectives. In the course of the present book, the merits, limits, and complexities arising from the use of these sources will be discussed when piecing together information about and attitudes towards the women of the Fatimid dynasty and the women living under Fatimid rule. The aim of the present work is above all to unearth references to women so as to reinscribe their role in the social history of the Fatimid era. This research is informed by an inclusive methodological stance, which results from the use of a variety of scholarly approaches to the study of women and Islam. We have resorted particularly to textual analysis and criticism, to the contextual and literary reading of historical records, as well as to the critical use of anecdotal material. In some yet rare cases, we have been able to release from those narratives the voices of the women themselves. End quote. Cortese and Calderini provide an incredibly detailed and well-written view of the Fatimids that, due to the biases present in those who have written about them to date, has been left out. Though a lot of the specifics of their work is not really relevant to us, the way they approached it will definitely be an influence on how I tackle future episodes. I mean, despite their differences, at least with regard to the role of women, the Fatimids and the Uchamar states were far more similar to each other than to our modern world and understanding one situation provides you with some good tools to use to understand the other one. I did use this book a bit when talking about Rasad, the enslaved mother of the Caliph al-Mustansir. But I actually cut out a quote I couldn't work in regarding slavery and royal concubines. So, here it is. Often also blurred is information relating to the status of the Fatimid royal women as free or slaves, as well as the circumstances that determined the transition from bondage to freedom. As for the royal concubine, one life-changing event would be to give birth to a child fathered by the Imam Caliph, which would raise her status to that of Um al Walad, literally, the child's mother. If the woman was a slave, the event could even secure her manumission. The birth of sons, in particular, changed the status of a woman, from that of one among many royal consorts to that of mother with dynastic investment. Um al-Walad is the common term used by the sources to refer to a concubine, whether free or slave, who would acquire rights upon giving birth to her master's child. Legally, the child born of a slave was free, and the mother could not be sold or sent away from the household. Moreover, at her master's death, she would become a free woman. Even though the Quran could be interpreted as allowing concubinage with a man's own slave, it does not define the position of the Um al-Walad. According to a tradition attributed to Ali, if the master wished, he could set free his Um al-Walad and consider her manumission as her bridal gift. Many Fatimid Imam Caliphs were indeed sons of Um al-Walads. However, it is hard to establish the way in which the Imam Caliphs complied to the laws regulating the relationship between a slave Um al-Walad and her master. One example among many is that of Rasad, the Imam Caliph al-Mustansir's mother. She was a slave who had been bought by the Imam Caliph Az-Zahir and became Um al-Walad by her royal master. Despite the extensive coverage of the influence that Rasad was to exercise at court, it is still unknown whether or not she was manumitted during Az-Zahir's lifetime. The practice of choosing future rulers among children born of concubines was by no means exclusive to the Fatimid Imam Caliphs. 
Other dynasties also followed this practice, alongside investiture of children born from legally sanctioned marriages. However, it took five more centuries before a Muslim dynasty, the Ottomans, overwhelmingly endorsed royal reproduction and descent through concubinage at the expense of descendants from legal marriages. End quote. What I particularly enjoy about this work is how it explores cultural and religious practice alongside legal status and what really happened. An absolute must-read. Okay, episode 1.9, Mare Nostrum. In this episode, there is no one primary source that deals with all of these events. I do have one secondary resource to recommend, but I also have a few semi-corrections to make. You can consider them footnotes. So, in this episode, I said a naughty word. I said the F word. Feudalism. Now, legend has it, if you say the F word too many times, Susan Reynolds will appear behind you and drop a mountain of medieval documents on your head. If you don't get that joke, you can just Google Susan Reynolds. Okay, so what's the problem with saying feudalism? Well, I will say that I gave myself an out. I said it wasn't used consistently. But I still feel that I might have been a bit confusing. So first, let's talk about feudalism a bit. We will be dealing with it in more detail soon, but just to clarify, the problem with this word is that it's used far too broadly to describe every aspect of medieval Europe, and that this shorthand erases a lot of the complexity and gives false ideas about how society was actually organized. Historians do use the word, but there's a lack of consistency in how it's applied. And this is also an inconsistency that transcends linguistic and cultural boundaries. There are differences in the history of the term in the UK, the US, France, Spain, Italy, etc. I think a good entry into what the debate is like is easily accessible at the Ask Historians subreddits. In the FAQ, there's an entire section that delves far deeper into how feudalism has been defined and used than what we can achieve here today. So, what was my use? Well, to start with, I actually cut a lot from episode 1.9. See, the development of Pisa and Genoa in particular is closely tied to events happening elsewhere in Western Europe, events that we're going to be exploring in season 2 because they're the motor driving the First Crusade. But episode 1.9 didn't have time to get into all of that, so I cut a lot of it. And I feel that this makes the case of Pisa and Genoa a bit more confusing than it should have been. So first, a point I really should have emphasized. The use of the terms patricians and doge were limited to Venice and to some degree Amalfi. In Pisa and Genoa, what developed were instead communes, and instead of Venetian doges elected for life, the communes of Italy had consuls, usually elected for set terms of a year or what have you. These communes would eventually come to be the basic city-state model throughout what was once the Kingdom of Italy. The exact date when they appeared is tricky to pin down, and it varies from city to city, but they were omnipresent by around 1150, and their development was closely tied to the conflict between the Pope and the German Emperor, which left a bit of a power vacuum in northern Italy. In the mid to late 11th century, though, Pisa and Genoa were among the first to begin to experiment with this new form of consciously collective government. I think the best source to understand the development of the Italian city-states is 
Chris Wickham's Sleepwalking into a New World. Quote, Before the 1080s, cities were fully integrated into the Kingdom of Italy. They had sometimes revolted against king emperors or bishops, and were occasionally divided by religious conflict. But their leading groups were fully part of traditional hierarchies, with regular appearances in public placita and feudal or clientelor ties to counts and bishops. When the civil wars began, the two great port cities, Pisa and Genoa, had to respond collectively to political divisions which threatened to pull each city apart, and they could respond relatively quickly, for they were used to organizing offensive maritime war. By the 1090s, each had an active assembly. Their leading elites were already called consules, and the challenges of continuing war, the First Crusade and then struggles against rural lords and rival cities, allowed these leaders to crystallize into a formalized ruling group with judicial authority, already by 1110. The excitement of successful eternal war in Pisa allowed this process to be not just smooth, but imperceptible, for there was no one to stand out against it. This doubtless goes for Genoa as well. End quote. We're not going to fully break down all the things Wickham's referring to here. In fact, trying to do so is what padded out episode 1.9 so much that I ended up cutting it. A lot of it relates to the developments in elite culture that we'll be seeing up close and personal in season 2. And of course, as I mentioned in episode 1.9, Venice and Amalfi were much closer linked to the Byzantines. And so their development was different from that of Pisa and Genoa. There, the role of the doge or duke grew out of Byzantine court titles and later became an elective role. The end result was similar for all four cities, though. A commerce-oriented style of collective government that didn't really fit into the personal hierarchical relationships that dominated elsewhere in Europe. I think that while that comparison may have been understood by the average listener with my casual use of the term medieval feudalism, because that term comes with so much baggage, I do feel the need to qualify it. So, this is a footnote, basically. And on to episode 1.10, an inconvenient truth, but like medieval. So, uh, this episode was also tricky, but it's mostly because there was much less of a narrative here. The one thing I'd like to add is actually a quote from Andrew Peacock's The Great Seljuk Empire, in which he specifically discusses the role of climate change in triggering the nomadic migrations I mentioned in this episode, most notably the arrival of the Turkmen, and he brings up the argument of not only Ronnie Ellenblum, whose work we discussed at length in this episode, but also Richard Bulliet's Cotton, Climate, and Camels, which presents a similarly ecologically deterministic argument to that of Jared Diamond in Collapse. Peacock says, quote, Some research has pointed to a severe chilling in the climate on the eve of the Seljuk invasions across the Middle East and Central Asia. Richard Bulliet, focusing above all on Khorasan, has argued that this disastrous cooling led to the contraction of agriculture and the collapse of the cotton industry, which was the mainstay of the economy of the East. Indeed, Bulliet suggests cooling even led to the coming of the Seljuks themselves, as it was especially dangerous to the camels on which the Seljuks relied, forcing them to abandon Khwarezm for the warmer territories of northern Khorasan and the Iranian plateau. The influx of nomads is said to have caused further damage to the economy and to the Khorasani cotton industry. According to this thesis, 
the chill and the economic dislocation caused by the Seljuk invasions lasted into the 12th century and triggered the flight of much of the Iranian elite to seek their fortunes in more favorable climes. The idea of a precipitous chilling in this period, connected both to the Seljuk invasions and to broader economic collapse, has also been advocated by Ronnie Ellenblum, drawing an evidence largely from the Levant. This evidence, however, is not entirely clear-cut. The chroniclers do record a series of harsh climatic events in the 11th and 12th centuries. However, severe cold in Baghdad is regularly recorded from the early 9th century onwards. In fact, from as soon as our sources start to take an interest in such matters, and long before the Seljuks appear in the Islamic world. There does not appear to have been any sudden change of pattern around the beginning of the 11th century that might be connected with the Seljuks. Indeed, scientific research, as opposed to the anecdotal evidence of chronicles, suggests conditions in the Middle East were actually warmer, if wetter, in this period. Even if climate change was happening, it would not necessarily have triggered nomadic migrations. For most nomads, will prefer to adapt to changing conditions if possible. Khwarezm remained a key pasture for nomadic groups till the end of the Seljuk period, suggesting that conditions there had not changed so radically as to make the surrounding steppes uninhabitable for the Turkmen. End quote. I think it's important to keep in mind that environmental history is a relatively new field, and more work is needed, both in terms of scientific studies and then in terms of interpreting the results of those studies and marrying them with contemporary accounts of events. It's also important to avoid falling into the trap of environmental determinism. Even if ecological pressures are acting on a society, the members of that society are not automatons in their reaction. They have a wide suite of options open to them. As I mentioned though, I am a sucker for the long durée French historian perspective, and that can get a bit deterministic at times. Alright, on to episode 1.11, Make Room. So we actually had a big discussion of the primary sources in this episode, because they play such a big role in understanding events. And in terms of secondary sources, my main recommendation is Byzantium and the Emergence of Muslim Turkish Anatolia by Alexander Daniel Beheimer. There's a reason why discussion of the Sultanate of Rum spilled over into various other episodes, and that's because this event changed a lot depending on who was viewing it. Roman historians, Armenian historians, and Muslim historians all differed in why they were writing the story of these Turkmen disruptors, and those reasons shaped how they presented the event. And there is a historical perspective and historiographical perspective to keep in mind here. Hopefully, our exploration gave a decent grasp of events, and also illustrated how many ways there are to interpret them. Now, episode 1.12, will the real Nikiforos please stand up? Alright, here, we're finally getting to, Anna Komnini. She's actually the one primary source I read who discussed the Normans. She is also an invaluable resource in understanding pretty much everything that happened in our first season, and she will remain crucial going forward. Apart from reading her work, I recommend taking a look at Leonora Neville's Anna Komnini, The Life and Work of a Medieval Historian. Anna's work is an amazing read, but of course, therein lies the danger. Anna is by no means unbiased, and her portrayal of events is so well written that it can be easy to just believe her. It can also be easy to say she's just too biased and ignore her. But Anna isn't really that different from any of the other primary sources. 
with two caveats. One, the events she's describing are monumental, and without her perspective, there are huge gaps in the stories of Byzantium and the First Crusade. And two, she's a woman. So, you know, controversy. As far as I know, she's the first female historian of Europe whose work we have, and uh, women historians were still a rarity a hundred years ago. It's even more surprising that she became a writer in Byzantium, of all places, which was, it should go without saying, a patriarchal society, and in which at the moment of their betrothal, women were valued based on how often they had been seen by others. The ideal was that no one outside of their immediate family even knew these women existed. But on occasion, women who were perceived as uniquely able to overcome the weaknesses of their gender were allowed to participate in public life. Usually, this meant adopting male-coded behavior, displaying traditional male traits, such as showing no emotion. On the rare occasion that a woman entered into business arrangements, it was cultural practice for her to swear that she was not, quote, acting like a woman. In her book, Neville demonstrates how Anna not only engaged in the hyper-masculine behavior of writing history, but also made sure to show herself as a traditional woman. She'll talk about her tears or lament the loss of a family member in the margins of what is otherwise a straightforward Greek epic. She's not on a Instagram Live or anything. She could have edited these outbursts out, and they're written in the same style of Attic Greek that was just as strange for her to write as it would be for me to write in Latin. There's no reason to think that these were actual brief moments of passion. So why are they there? Well, because Anna wants the mask to slip, so to speak. She wants to show that even though she's doing this very male thing, writing history, she is still a woman. Neville really adds a whole nother dimension to the Alexiad, and it's a great window into how complex the literary tactics used by Anna really were. Alright, the last handful of episodes are all much quicker, as it's really a lot of the same sources as previous episodes. So episode 1.13, Terror of the World, no notes, uh, the sources are the same as for episode 1.2. And episode 1.14, The Disorder of the Realm, again, the same sources as episode 1.4. Just one small correction, I mentioned that there was no alliance between Malik Shah and Alexios Komnenos. That's obviously wrong, I contradicted myself in episode 1.16. I meant to say that there was no marriage alliance between them. Remember, Malik Shah wanted his eldest to marry Anna Komnini. Of course, that never happened. And really, not much really happened from the Seljuk perspective of things anyway. Sure, the Byzantines got some territory back, but Malik Shah didn't really get what he wanted out of it. Episode 1.15, I'm going to start my own religious sect with murder and weed. So regarding the Fatimids, same sources as always. Ibn al-Athir makes another appearance here. The opening is adapted from his work. But as for the assassins, I mostly used The Ismaili Assassins, A History of Medieval Murder by James Watterson. It's a light read, as we didn't delve too deep into the organization, I was mostly trying to get a handle on where their story would be going. I will probably have to pick up a couple other sources moving forward. And lastly, episode 1.16, Jerusalem Calling, or is it Constantinople? Uh, just one minor thing I noticed here, I said the Armenians considered the Byzantines infidels. Well, I meant heretics. Infidels are literally the faithless usually used for those with a completely different religious tradition, while heretics are in many cases worse, as they pervert the proper doctrine. 
Within the episode, I mentioned a lot of sources, but I would still recommend Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood to start with. It doesn't have as much detail about Alexios specifically, but it does give a very good background to events. From there, you can go on to the Cambridge history of Byzantium, which is a bit denser. Well, all right, uh, this has been our bibliography episode. No witty conclusion or anything. I am hard at work on season two, and I will be seeing you all soon. <laughs> <laughs>